This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adikar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. I always struggle in this sermon format with uh, how much of myself I should share. On the one hand, people seem to like it when you do. Oh, thank, thank you for sharing. Thanks for being so, so vulnerable. And that makes sense. We can relate to each other's experiences. And even when we can't, we, we like hearing each other's stories. I, I do too. But on the other hand, if I'm going to stand here and talk to you tonight, tonight of all nights, it's got to be about something bigger than me and my experience. Torah, or tradition, something sacred. God. And, and I say all of this not just to process my process in real time, somewhat neurotically, but also because I, I think it parallels some question that's at the heart of Yom Kippur and the Yom Kippur experience. And that is, how much do I matter? How much do you matter? any one of us. How much does my life, my needs, my dreams and desires, and just my own sense of self and, and who I am, how much does all of that matter? Because Yom Kippur signals to us strongly that perhaps it does not matter as much as we might think. The central commandment of Yom Kippur, not the avodah, the public worship, but the commandment placed on each and every individual is initem et nafshotechem. Literally, afflict yourselves. That's very severe language. That's the same language we use to describe our affliction in Egypt, inui. The Torah repeats this command no less than five times. At every mention of Yom Kippur, afflict, afflict. And what do we afflict? Nafshotechem, our nefesh which we sometimes translate as our body and sometimes translate as our soul, but really just self. Afflict yourself. So, how do we afflict ourselves? Do we do like they did to us in Egypt and lash our bodies? Torture ourselves, mortification of the flesh. That practice exists in some spiritual traditions. No, no, say our sages in the Talmud very cleverly. It can't be that, because the same verse says, You shall do no work on Yom Kippur. So, they say, you also can't do work to afflict yourself by actively causing yourself pain. Instead, they taught that we afflict ourselves passively, by denying ourselves the fulfillment of our desires. And that's how we get to the five classic abstentions of Yom Kippur, one for every mention of Yom Kippur in, in the Torah. Again, very clever. No eating, no bathing, no sex, no skin care, and no luxurious clothing. No caring for yourself, in other words. No tending to yourself and your particular needs, your particular pleasures. And why not? If it's not self-punishment, but self-denial, not afflict yourselves, but neglect yourselves, what is the spiritual purpose of that? Well, I attempt to stop paying attention to myself 
it would seem, so that I can pay attention to something or someone else. That approach, anyway, tracks well with a particular concept in Jewish theology that I've been fixated on for the last few years, a theology that is expressed in the Hasidic tradition as bitul. That word, bitul, or bitl, means nullification. We used it tonight, actually, when we sang kol nidre, and declared that our vows be released, left aside, put to rest, and then there's one word that's doubled. Betelin umevutalin, null and nullified, such that they don't even exist. Lakayamin. The principle of nullification has some classic echoes in our tradition. In Jewish law, there's the rule of batel bashishim in kashrut, which states that when a drop of non-kosher food falls into a pot of kosher food or a drop of milk in a fleshig chalant, if the drop is 160th or less the amount of the other food, it is batel, nullified into the whole. And it becomes like it doesn't even exist. But in Hasidic theology, bitul is not just a concept that applies to vows or pots of stew. Bitul is a state that you are trying to get to. The phrasing in Hasidic literature is bitul hayesh, the nullification of being or bitul ha'atzmiyut, the nullification of one's selfhood. Because the great aspiration of the Hasidic spiritual path is dvekut, attachment to God. And the idea is that in order to experience that sense of attachment to God, you have to let go of your experience of yourself, your separate identity, and come to realize that deeper truth that really ain't od milvado. There is nothing but God. Now you are the drop, a drop in the ocean of God, and it's as if you don't even exist. Now I grew up with Hasidim on my father's side of the family. It's in Hasidic communities that I learned my Judaism. Look, everyone, I'm sharing my story with you. <laughs> I certainly had never heard of the concept of bitul back then, and I wouldn't have understood it if I had, but looking back, I can see how the theology of Bitul permeated that entire world. It was a world in which you felt strongly, without anyone saying it, that you shouldn't stick out. You dress the same, you follow the same strict laws and customs, you don't challenge the norm, you don't express yourself too much at all because, you come to understand, you don't matter. The collective matters. The tradition matters. You you're not that important. Now, that sounds like a recipe for complete misery for a young boy visiting from the wild and free San Francisco Bay Area, the child of a, of a bi-coastal divorce, just visiting my dad for the summer. And it's true that I was often painfully uncomfortable in that world, because I, I did stick out. I was different, and that, I intuited, was bad. I tried hard to blend in. My brother says that I used to adopt a slight Yiddish accent. <laughs> but they could tell that I was a fraud, an intruder, and I could always feel them staring at me. It, it could feel a little suffocating. But even so, I loved it. Or at least, I was always drawn to it. Because there was something in that world that I, I would feel sometimes. 
something there that I, I never felt in my secular life back in California. I wouldn't have known exactly how to describe it, but there was some force there, some kind of intensity of experience that would suddenly descend, most palpably in shul during certain prayers, but also in the long pause before the Rebbe spoke at a tish, or in the moment we all stood up for my father's kiddush Friday night, the Shabbos table glimmering with Hungarian silverware. And something would seize my heart, and I would lose myself for a moment, and then come back, pulsating with extra life. I didn't know what to call it, but I knew I wanted more of it. It wasn't until years later, in my early 20s, that I started to call it God. I had another one of those moments, but this time it wasn't in the Hasidic community. It was the year 2000, I remember, because my dad was dying in a hospital in Long Island. We were there every day, and it was the worst time in my life. And one night, I had driven into Manhattan to meet a friend just to get away, and I'm driving back down the FDR in the middle of the night, and the highway was nearly empty. And I remember I was playing this song that I loved at the time, and it seemed especially beautiful at that moment. And the lights from the bridge were twinkling, and I could see the East River, and my chest was so full of feeling, of pain and joy and beauty and fear, and I could feel something bursting forth and taking over. And suddenly I thought, oh, this is God. I'm feeling the presence of God. That's what this is. That's what it always was. And in that moment, I knew that whatever happened, I was going to be okay. Because I could feel that there was some force much greater than me, greater than my pain, greater than anything I had ever conceived. And it held me. And it actually seemed that I was a part of it. Ain od milvado. There was nothing but that. That moment and all the earlier moments in my childhood, they all suddenly felt connected because I realized that what they all had in common was this feeling that I became more and more aware of something else because, and to the extent that, I was no longer aware of myself. That's the concept of Bitul. The Maggid of Mezrich, the chief student of the Baal Shem Tov, and the one who really established Hasidut as a true school of thought, has a gorgeous description of what that might be like. A person must consider themselves as if they are nothing. Forget themselves completely. And then they can come to a place above time where all is even, life and death, sea and land. And if they give themselves over to it, they forget their sorrows. For in that place, there is total oneness. Achdut gamor. Have you ever been there? Do you know that place? I had just a taste of it. Just a taste, and I wanted more. And six months later, I was in yeshiva in Jerusalem, trying to get back to that place above time. And in a way, I've been trying ever since. So, 
Am I here to tell you that the whole point of Yom Kippur, the point of all of our fasting, and maybe the whole point of our spiritual lives, is to transcend ourselves, to leave our nefesh, our individual selves behind, to stop worrying about all our needy desires and anxious plans for ourselves, to forget ourselves and just experience oneness, just experience God. Well, I'm tempted to, but I'm not so sure. We ought to have some reservations about a theology of self-abnegation. First of all, it makes no sense. In, in, the, in the larger picture of Jewish life, to say that the self is insignificant. Now, who is the Torah talking to, if not the self? Who will perform all these mitzvot? And who has committed all these sins we're so worried about this time of year? Even the mitzvot of self-denial, the mitzvot of Yom Kippur, presume a self that can be deprived, that can feel the lack and be aware of it. But the theological problem is more fundamental than that. It's not just that the self technically has to exist in a Jewish framework, but also think about where that self comes from. The first indication in this tradition that we have a nephish is early on in the creation story when we read that God formed the human being from the dirt of the ground and blew into its nostrils the breath of life, vayihi ha'adam l'nefesh chaya, and the human being became a living self. God brought our selfhood into being, intentionally. And that must mean that the self is good, that it is desired, that it is part of the divine plan. And God animated the self with a part of God's own essence. And so, something about the self is godly. The self is sacred, to be cherished and guarded. And the Torah says this explicitly. Ushmor nafshecha me'od, guard yourself your life force, your soul, your being, carefully. And this message, I must say, tracks very well with the other great spiritual education I got in my childhood, the one I inherited from my mother's side of the family. Because if my father had introduced me to a world of transcendence, my mother's world out here in the great wild frontier of California, a land of, of progress and freedom, my mother's world held a very different message for me. You are special, my mother would say. You matter. You have something unique and important to contribute to the world. And your job is to figure out what that is by looking into yourself and finding out who you are and what you love and then manifesting the best of yourself to the good of all humanity. Follow your bliss, I often heard from my grandmother, a good Jungian quoting the Jung-inspired mythologist Joseph Campbell. And that was code for, do what makes you happy and fulfilled. That's the most important thing. Joseph Campbell spoke of a hero's journey, an archetype that recurred in all kinds of religious narratives and that we all had to walk. And he said, if you follow your bliss, you put yourself on a kind of track that has been there all the while, waiting for you. And the life that you ought to be living is the one you are living. Hero of your life is you. And the journey he's describing is one of self-discovery, the goal, self-realization. And that journey, I have to say, sounds in many ways a lot like the journey we've all been on these last 10 days. 
There's a process that we move through during these days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and for a month of preparation beforehand. It's a process that we call cheshbon hanefesh, an accounting of the self. There's that word again. We go inside ourselves and we take account of where we're at and what we've done, and we try to discover on some deep level who we are. Once again, the self is presumed necessary for this process. And what do we do with the self? Cheshbon, an accounting. But literally, choshev, it's a thinking, a thinking about ourselves. So, now here we are at Yom Kippur, and it seems we have arrived at a contradiction. Are we supposed to be thinking about ourselves or forgetting ourselves? Is it cheshbon nefesh or inui nefesh? Is this experience supposed to be happening within the inner recesses of our hearts, deep in the private world of our consciousness, a mirror-like confrontation with self? Or are we now reaching outside of ourselves for something greater, something beyond all individual boundaries, a place where our sorrows and our sins no longer matter because all is one and one is all? What is the work of this day? And, and what is the work of our lives? One last Hasidic voice, again on the concept of bitul, suggests a possible answer. This is Rebbe Nachman of Breslov, a later Hasidic thinker of 19th century Ukraine, the great grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, in fact, and surely one of the great spiritual geniuses of our tradition. He begins with a familiar description of the state of bitul. At the moment of bitul, bishat bitul, when one has become nullified into the ultimate, el kulo tov kulo echad, where all is good and all is one, azai bemet mitpatlin hayisurin, then all of one's sufferings become nullified as well. There it is, that release, that absorption into oneness, that glorious transcendent state. And again, it seems that something about that state brings a release, a, a release from suffering. And while I wouldn't advise that kind of cure for pain, I think I know something about what he's talking about. I think I felt some of that release for just a moment that night on the FDR. Ach, however, he continues, e efshar liot tamid kavua bevchinat habitul. It is impossible to always be in a state of bitul because if so, you will leave the bounds of your humanity. The thing about that place above time is that you can't stay there forever, or else you stop being human. Self-nullification, taken too far, can become a dangerous thing. It becomes self-annihilation. That you can do with drugs or with self-loathing, and that happens to so many of us. There are many ways to obliterate oneself. But it can also be done with religion. The spiritual life itself can become an escape, like another drug. I've used it that way before. The yearning for God, for transcendence, can become so all-consuming that one forgets oneself and one's humanity, not just for a moment, but for good. And that, Rabbi Nachman presumes, is not a good thing. 
to leave the boundaries of one's humanity is against the divine will, after all. We were given these selves for a reason. But then again, the experience of selfhood presents its own perils. And you can follow your bliss right into a kind of navel-gazing narcissism. Self-discovery quickly enough becomes self-indulgence, self-aggrandizement. I'm sure we can think of examples. But I think we all, on some level, struggle with the, the dangers of an unrestrained ego and the temptations of vanity and ambition. Yom Kippur wants us worrying about that, pushing back against those drives. Because one can become lost in oneself just as com completely as one can become lost in God. So we need a little bit tool, but not too much. And so, says Rabbi Nachman, The experience of bitul has to be something that comes and goes, and comes and goes. It's both. <laughs> what else did you think I would say? The Jewish answer is always both. But it's not both at once. It's not integration. It's both back and forth. An oscillation. I spent my childhood oscillating, shuffling back and forth between California and New York, between my mother's world and my father's, between two great visions of the purpose of human life, self-discovery and self-transcendence. And I always hoped that someday I would find some way to integ integrate the two, integrate the self. That's my Jungian inheritance talking. And there's something to that. Integration brings harmony, and that's, that's a good thing. But lately, I've been coming to suspect that we don't ever fully integrate ourselves. We oscillate. We go back and forth and back and forth between two states of being, self-awareness and self-unawareness, self-finding and self-forgetting, self-consciousness and God-consciousness. So this Yom Kippur, I want to bless you with both. As you take this cheshbon nefesh, this account of yourself, I hope you find something in yourself, some discovery that brings you to a fuller knowledge of who you are and what you're here for in this world. I hope that even as you sift through the regrets and the failed attempts, you also remember many moments this year when you stood up and used your voice and said something that had to be said, that, 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 or you created something that had to exist, or you helped someone that only you could help. I hope you realize that you matter. But I also bless you that there are some moments here and there, this Yom Kippur, in which you lose yourself. You forget your sorrows. You forget yourself completely and become suddenly aware of something much, much greater that holds you and everything together as one in that place above time. And I think we can get there. I think that's why we're gathered here. Because one of the surest ways to transcend the self, and the Hasidim know this as well, is to be surrounded by a mass of your people, all tuned into the same frequency, all singing and swaying together as one. And you are just one drop, lost in the ocean. And then suddenly, you feel yourself rising and rising and you realize that you've become part 
of a wave. I wish you all a Shana Tova and Gemar Chatima Tova. Hi, it's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you maybe even in person sometime soon.